You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on through a remote interview from Chicago, Illinois, Rebecca Mackay. Everything we know about the bomber. The briefcase he used was not the black one shown in phone footage. The black case belonged to Marion Cates, deceased, and contained two egg salad sandwiches. That the black case appeared so persistently on the news and on social media, despite being of no interest to investigators, delayed the apprehension of the bomber by as much as two days. We're told that in third grade, his English was lacking. We're told that he refused to smile for class pictures, but he was a happy child, he was. We are told he loved painting. We're told that Miss Mullins is too overwhelmed at this time to answer more questions. He was on the FBI's radar, and then he was not. He was someone's son, and then he was not. He had a girlfriend, and then he did not. He had a beard, and then he did not. His sister understood him, and then she did not. There is no question that he acted alone. He suffered from plantar fasciitis, cluster headaches, a borderline attention disorder, and repeated sinus infections. His heart was broken five distinct times. This much is clear from the autopsy. He studied botany, specifically the sticky and miraculous unfurling of single grains of pollen into long strings that drilled down the length of the pistol and into the ovary. His graduate work addressed the lipids involved in this reaction. His research was nearly complete. His finances were in order. He paid bills the day before the bombing, which leads us to wonder if he thought he'd get away with it, go home and need electricity, water, credit cards, or if some ingrained societal obedience overrode all he knew of the future. His one indulgence was scarves. He spent more per income proportionally on scarves than on entertainment. In 11 of the 16 photographs available to the public, he wears a silk scarf of one pale color or another, tucked expertly into the collar of his leather jacket. Affected, perhaps, but not for a European, which he was, after all, even if he was also American, even if he was also a thousand other things, not the least of which was vain. We agree collectively that the amount of time we have devoted to studying his skull shape, lineage, caffeine intake, and psychiatric history is neither helpful nor tasteful. On his bookshelf, Rimbaud, Dostoevsky, Updike, Conrad, Nabokov, Murakami, Dickens, Proust, Mann. Much is made of the depth and diversity of his reading, but then much is also made of the absence of women from his shelves. The Stanford professor who has arranged access to the bomber's copious marginal notes plans, separate from his assistance in interpreting these notes for the interested government agencies, to release his own analysis of the man's literary thinking. How long he will have to wait for clearance is naturally the issue. When the bomber was 11, he took a Hershey's bar from the pharmacy shelf and snuck it into the public restroom, where he consumed it in three bites. Terrified of the incriminating wrapper, he folded it in half, fourths, eighths, sixteenths, but decided against the toilet, which might clog. 
He put the wrapper in his mouth and chewed it like gum, and when it was soft enough, he swallowed. Much is still uncertain, but on this one fact we are clear. According to his mother, he was framed. According to his mother, the laws of the universe are incompatible with her son, her son, her son doing this. We wonder collectively why it's so important to us that she understand what we understand, that yes, he did this, that he bought the ticket, that he wrote that letter, that the basement was full of chemicals, despite our wish to spare her. Wouldn't it be better if she thinks it's the rest of us who've gone mad? We ask if she hasn't been through enough, but we need her to understand. The briefcase he used was a gift from his sister, something to replace the canvas bag he'd carried through his academic life. She was the one who identified a scrap of it, charred leather and a bit of buckle. There are things we can assume, that he was terrified, that he almost wet his pants, that he rehearsed, that he ordered a good meal that morning but wasn't able to eat it, that he prayed, that he didn't look at faces in the crowd, that his own name, when he checked into the hospital, sounded to him like a death sentence, that he'd pictured some glorious future, some altered universe in which history would be written by the victors, among whom he'd be chief, that he couldn't sleep the night before, but maybe those are facts about us, about the way we'd be. The bomber's ex-girlfriend is not ready to talk, but her roommate has given us certain details. The fight about the keys, the time he broke the girlfriend's wrist, the addiction to Indian food. The roommate starts most sentences with, if I'd known, we are happy to allow her this. He liked to solve puzzles. He liked to fix machines. When his third grade teacher, Miss Mullins, told him there was not enough time to talk about sharks, he slowed the mechanism of the classroom clock. Look, he said, I made the day longer. If he hadn't felt the need to watch the explosion, he'd never have fallen from the roof of the bank and would not have snapped his leg. Three days later, he wouldn't have stumbled, dazed and infected to the hospital. He would not, when he saw the nurse's eyes, when he realized the police were on their way, have barricaded himself, wouldn't have taken the hostage, wouldn't have demanded the suicidal drugs, wouldn't have shot himself when they were denied. Or so we assume. The country where he was born is on the map but only a detailed map. It has a flag, but not a flag we've seen. His country is smaller than Luxembourg, larger than Liechtenstein, with a surprising number of sheep. To be honest, we'd forgotten about his country. We aren't at all sure what he wanted. The night before his 23rd birthday, he sat in a mostly empty movie theater and watched Audrey Tautou run through the streets of Paris, suitcase in hand. As a botanist, he hated that the wrong things were blooming on screen. This was meant to be August, but here were tulips in the park. Each flower to him had a taste. He'd rarely tasted nectar, just a few curious times. The viscosity, if not the flavor, reminding him of his girlfriend, of afternoons on her small white bed. But he knew each flower's smell so intimately, so clinically, that when these tulips appeared, he felt it on the back of his tongue. 
He admired the director's brazenness. He assumed it wasn't ignorance in deciding what flowers bloomed when. He admired men who molded the universe like plastic. After this thought, his popcorn lost its flavor. We've gleaned all this from the video of surveillance. His mother stands on the porch and again and again says why, till it doesn't sound like a word at all. It's a different why from ours. We are ready to accept this. He had a tooth pulled in the spring of 2012. He was allergic to strawberries. He excelled at tennis. There was no food in his refrigerator. He was dead before they could interrogate him. His blog has been erased. We plan to learn more. We plan to keep updated. We plan to look for patterns. We've obtained a new map with slightly different colors. We will repeat these facts till they sound like history. We'll repeat them till they sound like fate. And that is the end of the story. Yay, thank you so much. <laughs> sure, no problem. <laughs> what inspired you to write this story? <laughs> yeah, um, I was in an airport um, on some leg of some book tour, I'm not quite sure, or visiting some college, something like that. Um, when the news was breaking about the Boston Marathon bombers, um, it was the point where they were, um, I think they had arrested uh, the one who survived. I'm not quite sure. I can't, you know, quite remember the details, but it was morning. It was the morning after the two of them had been on the run in Boston. And um, I was there. It was a delayed flight. And I was sitting on the floor, you know, it was one of those, like I was in the terminal or at the gate, you know, just waiting and there were no seats available and CNN, which you can't even hear is just playing on this endless loop. And you are just seeing the same photos and the same maps and the same everything again and again. Um, and I didn't want it to be about that particular bombing or those particular bombers, um, which I handled just with different details, but it just felt like, I'm stuck in this airport, so I'm just going to write something. Um, and uh, I wrote, that was a story that I at least uh, got through a draft of in one long sitting in the airport. Um, of course, then it was revised and it evolved after that. But there was a sort of a, a version of it that emerged uh, on the floor of whatever airport that was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you speaking to that, uh, yeah, really shows how like, uh, in situations like that, we do the news just kind of repeats the same facts over and over, hoping for like a new like morsel of a fact. And uh, right. And there is kind of like this uh, addiction we have of like wanting to know everything, but still not being able to like, of course, fully understand a person or their motives necessarily. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's useless, really, you know, this is completely useless information. It's, it's a very prurient interest we all have. Um, and I think we're trying to understand something with it. What we're trying to understand is why and how and um, trying to on some level relate to this person as a person. And that's just never going to happen. You know, you're never going to get that from um, the details that they can, you know, you get something and I, I, I don't blame them for reporting on it. Of course, they need to report on it. Or of course, they want to report on it. And of course, people want to hear that. But 
there was something about it, especially with the sound off, you know, <laughs> that's like, and that the, the 24 hour news cycle of like, this is going to fill our whole morning. That was just kind of surreal to me. And then is that typically like your writing process is no. like, no, okay, this is just like trapped. <laughs> yeah, no, I do not. I'm not normally doing ripped from the headlines. And I'm not normally writing on the airport floor. Um, no, I, you know, and I, I don't, I don't usually write something immediately. You know, usually stories are stewing for a long time for me before I write anything. I'll go back to ideas that I've had for years, you know. Um, so this is a really unusual kind of, you know, I, I'm not into the like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm normally not interested in the news for one thing. Um, so that's not you know, something that's just happened, whether it's literally on the news or just in my world, it's not something I'm usually uh, interested in, in processing right away. Perfect storm of boredom and opportunity. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, So would you say when it comes to, like, things you're inspired to write about is, uh, would you say it's pretty, like, um, diverse? Or is there, like, a topic you're always, like, drawn to or, you know, for a period of time, you become obsessed with something. Right. So, you know, the, the collection is, that that's in, which came out in 2015, is called Music for Wartime. Um, and, you know, theoretically, a lot of the stories are tied together by themes of music or war. Um, that one is neither. It's still of a piece with the collection. Um, it's, you know, war in a way more, more than music. Um, but other stories are about artists or um, you know, basically the idea would be in, in, in many of the stories, the sort of the quest for order and beauty in the midst of a brutal and chaotic world. But that was really me trying to look at stories I'd already written and find common threads between them. So I have stories in there that are about, you know, that go back to World War II. I have a story about reality TV. Um, I have a story about a college English professor. You know, it's... Um, they're, they're absolutely all over the place, um, except in, um, you know, one of my, you know, one of our, oh, I think for all writers, one of your greatest hopes is that what you might see as your ruts, other people see as your themes. And um, I tend to write about artists and academics. Uh, that is that is one kind of constant across my, my writing. Uh, something that I when I was younger, kept trying to push myself away from like, you know, like uh, the real stories are about gritty people of the streets. You know, like I was, my parents were both linguistics professors. I don't know about gritty people of the streets. I can tell you about linguistics conferences. Um, so, um, I, you know, eventually around the time that I started publishing and things started working for me, um, I was realizing that I needed to, to lean back and, and write about, um, people I was comfortable with. If not, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing from life, but I'm writing about the kind of people that I know that I'm friends with, that I'm interested in. Um, and that's a broad range. It's not one type of person, but, um, it does tend to encompass a lot of artists and academics from, from all backgrounds and all parts of the world and all eras, just that kind of person. So when you are like coming up with characters, uh, do you find that you like, write it first and then look at the person you've created or do you like do like uh like a pre-write of characters before you put them in your story does that make sense right so yeah no I think for novels I do a lot more pre-writing um or I may write a couple of scenes and I don't really know who they are yet but before I proceed with them on the, the long haul 
character development that a novel requires. I'll do some off-the-page writing or at least thinking. I'll go on a walk and think about a certain character, for instance. For stories, no. Um, It's much more likely in a short story that the character is kind of encompassed by their immediate motivations within those pages. I don't need to think about backstory beyond what I'm going to put on the page. Um, And... uh, it sort of is going to come through in a little bit more of an unplanned, organic way. Um, you know, so for instance, for that story that I just read, um, you know, I'm, I'm discovering his backstory and character as I write it. You know, it, it's a process of discovery for me. What am I finding myself writing? Oh, he was allergic to strawberries. Okay. You know, and it's, and it's just there on the page. Um, I don't know anything about that character that I did not write down in that particular story. Thank you. And then I know you have, um, uh, like a collection coming out soon? Uh, so I have four books out. Um, so The Borrower and The Hundred Year House were my first two novels. Then Music for Wartime is my collection. And The Great Believers came out last year. And that's the one that was just a Pulitzer finalist and everything. So that's, I'm still um, touring a lot for that. And that was only last year. So it'll probably be 2021 before I have a new book out. But I have um, stories coming out soon. So I have a story, The Spring in the Paris Review, um, and other things, you know, coming out, uh, in shorter fiction. That's awesome. Is there, um, like a website or somewhere that our listeners can find, uh, like updates on your work and stuff? Yes. If I manage to update my, uh, website often enough, uh, rebeccamakai.com. So R-E-B-E-C-C-A-M-A-K-K-A-I. Um, but also, um, Twitter is a really good way to keep up with what I'm doing. Awesome. What's your handle? It's at Rebecca Mackay. And also one thing I'm doing this year, I'm doing, I decided to post a writing prompt every single morning for the entire year. There are these really weirdly specific writing prompts. So I post one at 9am every day. um, And I'm having a a blast with that. So awesome. Added bonus if people follow me on Twitter. And this concludes season two of Stories But Shorter. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this season. And thank you to Jeremy Schmidt, our wonderful producer, for making the show so great, and to Campfire Media for hosting us. And also thank you to all the guests who came on and shared their stories with us and some great feedback about their writing process and their stories in particular. It was such a treat. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Stories But Shorter to stay up to date and to let us know what you liked about the season and if there's any authors you would love for us to have on the show. We would love to hear from you and we'll see you next season. Bye. Ever wanted to hear from the neighbor at 9 Cloverfield Lane? Or what if I told you that Dr. Loomis's worst patient wasn't Michael Myers? I'm Adam Peacock, host of the podcast My Neighbors Are Dead. Join me each week as I talk to the lesser-known characters from your favorite horror films. Each week is an all-new, fully improvised journey into the unknown featuring friends and luminaries from the worlds of comedy, horror, and beyond. New episodes every Tuesday on Campfire Media. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Campfire.